All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the grand finale, sixth and final session of the world of Kabbalah. By the way, how bittersweet is that, right? It's like final sessions, it's exciting, we're going to culminate the course, and yet uh, it's the end of an era, the end of an era. But don't worry, we'll have more opportunities. Hey, Mark, good to see you. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. Um, Don't forget about grabbing some eats. Okay, here we go. This is the world of Kabbalah. This is lesson number six, and we have an incredible course in store for you. Sorry, incredible class in store for you tonight. So, <coughs> tell you a story. My kid, my son, I have a teenage son, and he has. I know, I know. I was five. Anyway, I have a teen, teenage son. Ooh, um, I got him a cell phone plan with unlimited minutes, and he still went over. <laughs> anyway, you know the you know the story about the um, the Jewish parents, the atheist Jewish parents, that uh, they they're looking for a good school for their kids, so they send their kid to a Catholic school. All right, it's a great school. Kid comes home one day and uh, is asking questions about the you know, the Jewish dad about the Trinity. What does he know from a Trinity? So he says, "Look, look." He says, uh, "Whatever the child's name is." Hey, Scott. He says, "Look." There's only one God, and we don't believe in him. <laughs> tough crowd. Tough crowd tonight. All right, here we go. Lesson number six. Lesson number six. Um, this is the grand finale. We have saved the best for last. So by now, you, I'm sure you know. Was that somebody here at the door? No? Hearing noises? Okay, by now, you, we, I'm sure we all know what this course objective is. The objective of this course is to look at the spiritual architecture of existence through the magical lens of Kabbalah. And at the same time, we're also looking at the inner workings of the human soul. And so if you have that chart that we've been referencing throughout this course, so you will, have, you will remember that the left side is the cosmic, the right side is the human, right? So we have the macrocosm, the microcosm, and that's what we've been doing. Um, and it's been, I think it's been a, a pretty remarkable journey so far. So just to quickly recap, I always like doing this at the beginning of the class. Just to quickly recap, we started from the beginning at the bottom and we worked our way up. Lesson one, we spoke about <coughs> the lowest three worlds of Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya, known by the acronym. Hey guys, hey, come on in. Known by the acronym Bia. So we started with the lowest three worlds, the world of creation, emanation, action. We explained that these are worlds of separation. The parallel within, on the human side, the human side parallel is, are, are the garments of the soul, the three garments of the soul, right? Three worlds, three garments, thought, speech, and action that are likewise separate and distinct from the soul itself. These are modalities of expression. That was lesson one. In lesson number two, we studied the world of Atzilut. We went up, and you can follow along with the chart if you'd like. You know, we went, we went up to the next level, the world of Atzilut. We explored the 10 spherot, the 10 divine energies within that world, and we showed their parallel within the emotional, within, sorry, the intellectual and emotional powers of the soul. In lesson number three, we looked at the Arain Sof. We went up from the spherot to the Arain Sof, which is the infinite light, and we drew a parallel to the power of desire, and will within the human soul. In lesson number four, we looked at the primordial world of chaos, known as, who remembers what it's called? Tohu. Excellent. Tohu is chaos. 
and we explain that this world of chaos is the source of our self-oriented and selfish animal soul. We have a duality, animal soul, godly soul, comes from the worlds of tohu and tikkun, chaos, and order. And finally, well, not finally, but up until now, um, last time on Murder, She Wrote. Remember that? Yes. You guys remember Murder, She Wrote? Yes. You guys surprised that I remember Murder, She Wrote? Well, you know, you look old. Thank you. Huh? You look old. Perfect. <laughs> Good. So in Lesson 5, which was last week, we explore the Tzimtzum, the great divine contraction and alleged divine concealment. We said it's not real, but it's apparent, whatever. Either way, and we explain that that is the source of darkness, various forms of darkness, and together with that, we, de- we derived and extracted powerful lessons for dealing with the elements of darkness in our lives and in the world at large. Okay, so now, at this point, it's lesson six, and that takes us to the end of our conversation. But guess what? We're not at the end. Where are we? Why? We're in the beginning. Why are we in the beginning? Because, <laughs> true. No, but because remember how we're going through this course? We're starting from the bottom and up. So where are we now? At the top. We are at the beginning. So the end is really the beginning. And that's where we find ourselves. Hey, hey, oh, what a surprise. Good to see you guys. So, so we find ourselves now at the end, but we're really to the beginning. And the beginning is the beginning. And when I say beginning, I mean, by the way, the first mention of baseball in the Torah, in the Bible is? In the beginning. Wow. 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 Big inning. This is legit. By the way, first mention of tennis. We're about to get there in the Torah readings. We're almost up to, up to there. First men. Well, okay, good. That's not what I was thinking. First mention of tennis in the Torah. Who's got it? Joseph served in Pharaoh's court. I will see myself out. It's been it's been a good five and a little bit weeks. All right. So here. So we're back at the beginning. Lesson six. We're at the top, and at the top is. What's at the top? Okay, look at the chart. I'm going back to the chart. Love the chart. Uh, what's at the top of the chart? <coughs> what's that yellow? Orient Sof. What was the Orient Sof called? What is it? That's a light of Ah, boom. So what's at the top? Boom, God. So at the top, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Who? Finally, we'll talk about God after all these weeks, right? We've been talking about everything else. Finally, we're going to talk about God, right? We've talked about God's light, God, the chaos, the order, Atzilut, Bria, Yitzira, Asiya, all of this stuff. Tonight, we explore what's at the top, i.e., God Almighty. So, we're going to look at the essence, the source, and we're going to address what seems to be unaddressable and explicate, I think that's the right word, the inexplicable, trying to explain the unexplainable. What is God? Who is God? Where is God? Why is God? And what does God mean for us, for you and I? All of that tonight, right here, right now, as we get started. Um, this is going to be a very big class. This is the one you've been waiting for. I know you've been waiting for this one. This is the class you've been waiting for. We have so much to talk about. All right, so I've divided this class into three acts. Act one, off the charts. 
Act number two, God is an atheist. And act number three, coming home. Coming home. All right, let's begin with off the charts. First things first. Okay, so tonight, as I explained, we're exploring God himself. By the way, I'm using the male or masculine, masculine? Male pronoun, himself. God does not have a gender. I should probably just straight off the bat. So you're not going to give his pronouns. God, one second, one second. God is not a he, him, or he, him, or a she, her. Why? Because God is above and beyond gender. God is not gendered. So why is it that when you... One second. So why is that when you open up the prayer books, you open up the Chumash, it's, it uses masculine pronouns? It does that because in the Hebrew, it's, there's various reasons. A very technical reason is in Hebrew, um, there's a masculine and feminine version of, you know, in grammar, word can either be masculine or feminine, and the masculine version is a little bit more inclusive. In other words... If one can be one way or the other, then it is sure. I know I'm not sure what you're saying, but either way, it can be. um, It can go for both ways. The point is that God is beyond these definitions, which we'll get to, of course, tonight. So we're exploring God, the essence of God, which the first uh, phrase or the first term, sorry, that I'm going to drop tonight, Kabbalistic phrase to learn is atzmut. Okay, that's the first phrase, atzmut. It's one word, I'm saying it like two words, but it's really two syllables. Atzmut, which means the essence, the core essence of God. So in Kabbalah, if you encounter the word atzmut, you know it means the source, the core, the essence of God beyond the infinite light. Beyond the light is core essence. And I want to explain that again with the chart over here. So, you know, as, we, as I pointed out before, when you look at the chart, the top of the chart is the Arayin Sof, right? That, that yellow, I don't know, blob at the top, right? It says Arayin Sof, that's the infinite light. But my friends, infinite light is just the infinite light. That's not the source. That's not God himself or, I don't know, itself. That's not, that's not the essence. That's just the light. God is where? Off the charts, off the map. God is not on a map. You can't position God in any space in a continuum. It's like you have the various worlds and you have the various energies and there's a hierarchy. And then you would say that God is on top of all of that. Not really. God is not in that linear construct. Everything else within creation follows sort of a linear construct. But God himself, the essence, Atzmut, is in a completely different league, in a completely different category as we will explore. I just want to differentiate Atzmut, the essence from the infinite light. What is light? We've talked about light a lot in this, uh, in this course. What is light? Light is always that which radiates from a source. So you have a source of light, and then the light that emanates and radiates, radiates out from it. So you would have, let's say, a flashlight, right? I mean, I'm not holding a flashlight like this. I'm holding it like this, because that's the cool way to hold it. Kidding. Right, so you're, right, you're holding a flashlight. I remember getting my first mag light. Remember those mag lights? Remember that? massive, heavy, right? It's like, oh, let me put it in my backpack. Anyway, so, right, you have the flashlight, with the sweat, which has a bulb and a source of light, and then from there, it emanates, right? It emanates forward. So you have two realities. You have the ma'ar, the source, and the ar, and the light that comes out of the source. 
And it's very different because the way Kabbalah describes this, and I think we know this to be true, is that essence, right? There's a phrase, kol etzem bilti miskala. Like a true essence doesn't actually come out. It doesn't come revealed. What, what reveals itself is something of the essence that then reveals itself, but it's not the pure essence that comes out. So you have two different realities. You have essence and then you have revelation. So I'll give you an example. So let's say there are two people going out on a date. I, we may, I may have used this example before. Remind me if I did or, you, or either way, it's good. So you have two people that go out on a, on a date um, and they're getting to know each other. First date, they're introducing, oh, hi, I do this, do that. Great. What's happening here is really there are four people not two. There's really four people. What do I mean? There's each individual, there's who they really are, right? Who this person really is and who that person really is for themselves. And then there's a second persona, <coughs> the way they show up on a date, what they say, how they, you know, how they project, how they interact. That's a complete, that's, a, that's another layer to who they are. There's who they are and then there's how they interact. So it's almost like on that date, it's, you know, person A, person B, it's the light revealed persona of person A that's having a conversation with the light revealed persona of person B. I hope they get along. I don't know about these people, but I hope they get along, right? It's like, even if that works, who knows what's going on over there, right? Anyone who's been in a relationship for a little while knows that yeah, the light sometimes runs out, and then, then you get to know the real person. <laughs> usually, usually a combination. You know, we had in the Torah readings recently where Jacob um, wants to marry Rachel, and he's promised Rachel's hand in marriage. And... No, they have the wedding, and apparently she was wearing a veil. I don't know what kind of veil that was, but like... <laughs> and the Torah says they get married, and the next morning, and behold, it wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. He should have looked. Huh? He should have looked, <laughs> right. <laughs> How everything played out, I don't know. But here's the deal. The Torah says in the morning, it was Leah. And the mystics say this is true of every relationship, right? You're marrying, you know, you, the person that you marry has really, like, like both, right, both parties, there's, everyone has two personas. There's our best self and then our true self. I'm not trying to be cynical, I'm just saying, sometimes it's not always, we don't always put on our best self 24-7. And so the question is, what happens when you notice, oh, it's not Rachel, it's Leah, that's when the work starts. That's when, that's when marriage begins. Ah, now you can get to know the real person. Anyway, so back to the story. So with God, you have the Ar Ein Sof, which is the infinite light. And the light is always about the other. Light is a projection. It's a way of projecting outward in order to reach or to influence something else. But the essence is always for oneself, right? So there's God's light and then there's God's essence. We've spoken about where we've discussed from God's light downward throughout this series. Tonight, we go back to the source, to the essence, beyond the light. We're talking tonight about God. So what do we know about God, and how do we even speak about God? 
right? How do we capture the pure essence of, of reality? What ideas can we offer? What language can we use? What type of expression um, can we employ in this conversation? So it seems like it would be very, we would be very hard pressed to say anything um, you know, that, that, that makes sense when speaking about the essence, if the essence is really beyond anything that we can relate to. Because everything we relate to is from the light projection downward. So how do we relate to that which is beyond that divide? How do we even relate to the essence of God? So what's fascinating is that Kabbalah speaks extensively, extensively about atzmut, about the divine essence. And while we're not going to get a lot of direct, what we would call chiyuvi, um, how do you translate that? Positive, but not like optimistic, pessimistic. You know, you can know something in the positive or in the negative. You can know, um, you can know what something's not, and you can know what something is. Correct? Okay. Let me try to make sense. This is a water bottle. This is what I've been told. This is a water bottle. I know what it is. I know what it does. I know where it comes from. I know what size it is. I know what shape it is. I know what it's holding. I can, I can pretty much wrap my head around this idea. I know what this is. Certain things I can't know, but I can know what they're not. Right? Kind of process of elimination. I can know that it's not something else. Then there are certain other things that we can't even know what it's not, but we can still talk about. And so that's God. So thank God the mystics do a lot of that heavy, heavy lifting for us to give us some framework of conversation. So tonight, we're going to explore what Kabbalah says about God. So here we go. And I want to give you the wireframe of the rest of tonight's class. What I want to do is give you five big ideas about God. I know, it's a BuzzFeed article, right? Top five things you didn't know about God. So five, is BuzzFeed surround? I think it is. Five, idea, five things that we know in Kabbalah about God, and then how those are paralleled, five, five things within the human soul, and then followed by a final takeaway for the course. That's it. That's, that's where we're headed. Five ideas about God, five ideas, parallel ideas about the human being, and then the final takeaway. So let's explore the five ideas about God Number one, number one, um, is that God is not subject and possesses no description. God has no description, no labels, no description, no definition. The reason why this is important is as follows. Anytime you use language to describe something, you are, in essence, defining it. And when you define something, you are, by virtue of definition, limiting it. That's the nature of the beast. So, for example, if I call this a water bottle, so I'm defining what it is, I'm labeling it, I'm defining it, and by virtue of that definition, I am limiting it. It's a water bottle, and it's not, what's it not? Everything else, right? It's not a cat, it's not a car, it's not a table, it's not a chair. It's a water bottle. So the moment you label something, what you're saying, even if you give the most beautiful description, what you're doing is you're defining it, locking it into a space, and essentially saying, and it's not everything else. So definition, by definition, is limitation. Does that make sense? Okay, so if we were to call God kind, does that sound nice or not nice? Sounds great. 
What's the problem? It's the, huh? You're labeling. It's aside from the fact that it's humanizing, there's another core, there's something I think that's even more core prob uh, problematic about that. That is that by referring to God as, let's say, kind, you are labeling, describing, defining, and therefore limiting God. Now, does God possess kindness? Sure. Where? By now you guys know. In the world of Atzilut, there are ten spherot energies, and one of those is chesed kindness. Great. Is God wise? Absolutely. In Atzilut, in Chachma. Chachma, Atzilut, that's God's wisdom. But what about God's essence? You can't call the essence wise or kind. That would constitute a limitation of the essence. Are you guys with me on that? Yes? Yes. Good. 13 attributes of mercy. Hashem, Hashem, Kelracham, V'chanan, etc. Good. That would be associated with the 10 Svirot of Atzilut. That's where that would come from. Although the idea of forgiveness is coming from a place that transcends um, a very boxed in um, construct because it is about going outside the box, right? If we have a relationship based on rules and I break the rules, so it would seem like it's over. So to get back in good graces requires me to go a little bit above and beyond where kind of everything was, uh, was laid out previously. So it's coming from around that area, maybe a little bit higher, but that's the core, that's the core idea. But remember, tonight we're talking about the divine essence. In divine essence, atzmut, you can't use any phraseology. Wise, kind, knowledgeable, right? Strong. All of these wonderful adjectives don't play in the space. You can't even say space when speaking about the divine essence. And by the way, I will say it's a very hard topic to speak about. Because pretty much all language, right? Any language that we use is going to be defining because that's what language is for, right? Language is literally to define things. And so we're trying to use now, or I'm trying to speak about a topic that the first point is there's no description, no definition, no labels. Great. <laughs> what are we going to say? Huh? Is that why there's so many names for God? It's interesting. It's interesting. The names typically are associated, there's, a, there's an extra bonus feature in this lesson that talks about, toward the end, that talks about the different names of God and kind of where they're positioned and what they're referenced to. Um, I think that by and large, the names of God are other dimensions, but when we talk about the essence, that's more of when, like in, in, in scripture or in liturgy, when we say to God, when we say you, right? Like, Baruch Ata Hashem Elokeinu, like in a blessing. So we say, Blessed are Ata you, Hashem, Hashem Elokeinu. We have three different names. You, four letter name of God, and then Elokeinu. Essence, infinite light, and then limitation. That's, this is already like advanced Kung Fu Kabbalah here. This is advanced like Jujitsu. Um, but th there's no name for the essence. It's beyond names. With that being said, let's take a look at text number two. Okay. Um, oh, I should also mention, what I decided to do tonight was do a bit of a remix of the class. You guys know what a remix is? 
It's like the modern version of a mixtape, but not at all. So it's like I'm DJing tonight's class. So we're going to take parts, go in a different order, but don't worry, you're in good hands. All right, we're going to start with text number two, when words fail. Uh, that's a very good question. This is 178, page 178, and Dasi, you up to reading? Okay, so let's break the thank you. Let's break this down, paragraph one, paragraph two. In paragraph one, the author states the following. Only something that has limitation can be labeled. Only something that has definition can be defined. How can you define the undefinable? Therefore, God, the essence, atzmut, that's not subject to limitation or definition. Therefore, language fails. Great. That's what we've been saying tonight. However, he says, so what do you say? We do know one thing. From that core essence of God that we can't label, unfolded creation, right? There was the infinite light that emanated, and then the rest is history. Literally, the rest is history. So he says, so you can use the word creator. Not that you're saying that that essence is defined as creator. We're just saying what we know. That creation happened from, the es- from what originated as an essence, so we'll say creator, not again, not as a limitation, but just as a point of reference. Does that make sense? Yes? Sort of no? No. It, it's you're playing with the concept. In other words, to me, I'm just following my Western thinking. If you say he's a creator, uh, if he is a creator, then you've limited it. You Correct. He's not the creator. Correct. I agree. So I agree with you. Kindness, God is kind, God is wise. Correct. I agree. And that's why I don't like the translation here. The translation is not great. He doesn't say to refer to God as creator. He's saying that we can recognize God as that which is the ultimate originator or source of creation. But really, that's all we know because all other descriptions fail. We don't really have any way to wrap our heads around or, or our language around a, even the word infinite, as we'll see soon, is, uh, is, is, is an improper word to use because that also implies some sort of definition. Yeah. At its surface, on its surface, creator implies not a destroyer. Right. Yet we know a lot of creation does occur. Does occur to just, uh, Tohu, the world of chaos, right? That was a world of destruction. Good, right, so creation is not a great term, so we can strike, if we wish, we can strike the second paragraph, and just, just think about the first paragraph, because that's really the core point. Forget the creator part. The core idea here is that there are no labels, descriptions, definitions, um, you know, points of, of reference that will really work for Atzimut, for the essence of God, because the essence of God is beyond all sorts of definition, limitation, Description, appellation, etc. Not the mountains. Okay. Yes. Could I, could I just add one thing? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, creator could be could be what he does, and not what he is. Right. The problem with that is that God's essence is way beyond creating this finite reality. Yeah, he could have created a bunch of other stuff, which, which we're not privy to. So that's why the, the, the language of creator is a little bit dangerous. Now, he says, from our reference point, it's a reference point. But to, but to, to use it definitively as a description would be incorrect. That's the big idea. Now, let's move on to the second idea. So, again, I'm giving you five ideas. If you want, you can write them down. So, again, idea number one that we know about God's essence is there are no descriptions, no definitions, no labels, no limitations. Okay, that's number one. Number two, here's what we know about God's essence, is that there is no beginning. There is no beginning. Let me explain this. Remember that infinite light? Remember the Hebrew term for the infinite light? It was the Ar Ein Sof. Now let's break that down. Ar means light. Ein means without. Sof means end. So it's the light without End. Great. Let me ask you a simple question. Um, why do we say that the light has no end? Why don't we say the light has no beginning? You know what the answer is? Because it does have a beginning. That light, that infinite light, has no end. It has a beginning. Imagine if you have a, light, a flashlight, like I felt when I went to camp, that could go endlessly. That mag light? It, it can't. But imagine you did have a flashlight that could theoretically go infinitely into, into space. That would be amazing, right? Sell that thing, make a lot of money. However, it has a beginning. It starts with the source of light, and then it emanates. The infinite light is a light that has no end, but it has a beginning. What about God? What about God? Does God have a beginning? How do we know? Maybe God has a beginning. So here's my answer. If God has a beginning, then we'll call that God. <laughs> Who made God? Well, then, boom, let's just transfer the title. Easy peasy. Right? Well, who made that? Just, just keep on going up. Keep on going up. So Judaism says the following. Kabbalah says the following. Let me explain this. We live in a world of cause, causality, cause and effect. Anything that's here was made by something else, including us, right? Everything here was made by something else. That was in turn made by something else. That was in turn made by something else. Just keep on going. Keep on going back. Go, go, go. Go all the way back. Where'd the first thing come from? Right? The very first thing, where did it come from? So again, Kabbalah has an answer. The very first thing just was. It just was. Right? It just was. There was a first thing, a first cause, prime mover. That's how the, you know, Aristotle speaks of it. Uh, that doesn't have a, an antecedent. It, it was. It always was which makes that source, you know what, let's, um, I don't know, we'll just call that God for argument's sake. I'm kidding, right? That's, that's what we would call God. God is the original, original existence, right? OG existence. So, so when it comes to, 
that reality, when it comes to that divine reality that has no antecedent, has no prior cause that makes it be, it just was, it therefore is radically different than every other form of existence. It is radically different than every other form of existence. Why? Because everything that exists could have also not existed. You with me? If it wasn't made to be. Correct? At some point, someone chose to make it. They could have chosen not to make it. Remember Back to the Future? Remember Michael J. Fox goes back in time? And he kind of like, he meets his mother and they start hanging out. And then he opens his wallet. You guys remember this scene? And what's happening to his picture? Starting to disappear. Because guess what? If his parents don't meet, he doesn't exist. So now he's in the past, right? His mom is becoming friendly with him, and he's like, no, 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 no. I got I to gotta get dad involved over here. Again, when, when the thing was made by something else, this didn't have to be. It was chosen. It was caused to be. We call that in Jewish philosophy and mysticism, Efshari Hametziyot. Efshari. It could have been. It could not have been. It is, but didn't have to be. But God? God just is. But we don't really know what we're missing. By... There could be where we did not come about. So we don't know what that was. Right. Kind of parallel universes and all that good stuff. What's that other... Um, simulations? Okay. But we're here, and so the idea is that everything that exists, look around this room, everybody, everything that exists was made to exist, which means that it could have very easily not existed. There is one thing that you, to use the language, has to exist. Has to. Just does exist. Not for any other cause, not by virtue of any other cause, but just because it is isness. Isness is his business, said no one ever. And that is God. God is the only reality that just is. Not was made to be, but just is. Pure, pure, bona fide existence. Well, how do you know the beginning of life? When you say there's a beginning, where does it start? It starts with God. How do you find it? How do you know? How do you see it? So that's, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. So the Kabbalists had, you know, knowledge from above. I'm just sharing with you what Kabbalah teaches. That, that at, if you go all the way back, 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 back. It sounds like a home run call, right? Back to the wall, it's gone, right? Oh, you go all the way back, right? Things are making things, but just peel, peel the layers all the way back. There is a, there is a beginning, and that beginning is not made by another thing. That just is. And that's what we call God. And we can't describe it. It's very hard to speak about it. We kind of know what it's not. It doesn't have description. That was the first point. Second point is, it has no beginning. There's nothing prior to it that made it be. 
Don't scientists say that matter always existed? I, I've always talked to friends who have told me that, and I still, uh, especially the agnostics among them, um, and non-believers. I said, if you can believe that matter always existed, why can't you believe that God always existed? And maybe it's just the language. Maybe it's just a, you know, what you call matter, I call God. The, the, I mean, the, the, obviously the difference is that um, when, you, when you insert a belief that says that that source not only is just is and was and whatever, but that it also has an agenda about how to live. Now that's where it gets a little, everyone can believe in matter forever because it doesn't cost you anything. It's like, sure, why not? What is it? What, do I have to change my life? No, done. Absolutely, I believe. The issue with God is, right, especially in the context of religion is, well, hold on. How much is this going to cost me? What do I need to do? I'll let you know if, I, I'll let you know if I'm, I'm on board. That's why sometimes, you know, belief is shaded with kind of like, what do you want from me? That's, uh, that's all right, that's against, yeah, against religion, yeah. Well, you know, one belief widely held among scientists is there was a big bang. And it had a geneticist, Prof, actually, who was a born-again Christian. But he said, well, they said it was a spark and a big bang. He said, but he said, where'd the spark come from? Right. Yeah. Wherever, and I mean, you just, it's just a thought experiment, right? Wherever something came from, right, it, it, you would imagine it's coming from something which comes from something. At some point, there is a source, or there is a... It just is, and then from, from there, everything else, there's a starting point. Now, let's, let's read some texts about this. Again, all this is pretty heavy stuff. Now we're up to 177. Meera, please read this one. We're going back to the future. Text number one, 177, beginningless versus endless. Cage match. We refer to God's light as being so, without Instead of being most of the without a beginning. This preference appears puzzling because essentially there is no difference. Anything that has no beginning also has no end, as is known. The truth is that if we intend to refer to God's very essence, it would indeed be appropriate to use the phrase without a beginning. However, what we describe as being so is in fact God's light and radius and not God Himself. To clarify, when the Kabbalists speak of the or so, their intention is the endless light of God, not the endless light one, or not the light of the endless one. They are not attempting to describe the origin of the light as endless, for we cannot describe God himself as endless. Right, so, and the English here is also not, the English fails. Um, it's not that we can't describe God as endless. It's that we can't limit God to say that God only has no end. God also has no beginning. The light has no end, because it has a beginning. God has no beginning and no end. God just is. A human being who comes from the world of beginnings. Welcome to the world of beginnings, right? I'll be your host. We come from a world of beginnings. We come from a reality in which we were made, right? We come from this causal reality. We were made by something who was made by something. That's just the way we, that's, that's our whole paradigm. It's our whole framework. Go wrap your head around something that doesn't operate by those rules. <laughs> Good luck. It's not going to work, right? It's, it's going to be very hard to wrap our heads around 
and positively identify what that would look like or feel like, right? That's why, that's why I said at the beginning, we're not going to be able to use definitive positive language in reference to God's essence. What we're going to be able to do is talk, talk around it, but not directly. So here's what we know so far. Again, two, two, two things that we know so far. Number one, no descriptions, no labels, no definitions, no limitations. Number one, to the essence. Number two, God is, sorry, no beginning. God has no beginning. God just was. God just is. God will, God, God is, just, just is reality. Um, okay, let's, let's continue with the third idea. Third idea is very important. The third idea says as follows. Um, and this kind of falls into the, the, the conversation that we're having, but, but I want to focus on a specific element here. The third idea is that God is beyond all of the rules of logic that we have. So think about this. Logic, logical rules are that which form the construct of our created reality. But God's essence exists beyond that framework of logical rules and methodology. I'll give you a simple example. Who invented the game of soccer? I don't know either. So I'm glad we're, I'm glad it's a, it's a, it's a friendly space. Okay, whoever invented that decided to come up with rules, i.e., no hands, unless you're the goalie. Correct? You don't use your, you only use your feet. Hence the name football or soccer. One of the two, right? Because you can only use your feet, you can't use your hands. Great. Um, who, what's, who's the most famous soccer player? Pele. Pele. What about Messi? No Messi fans? Maybe not. Yeah. If you're a Miami fan, right? Messi. Pele. Who was um, Argentina? Who was that guy? Maradona. Maradona. The hand of God. <laughs> he did use his hands. <laughs> if you know this story. Ah, I saw the replay. He definitely did. <laughs> Some are in denial. Let me guess. They're fans of Argentina. <laughs> anyway, so imagine the, 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 the greatest soccer player you know, right? He knows how to play the game. Wonderful. Then, then let's say you guys go out to dinner. Yeah? Pele. Is he using a fork or is he just bobbing for apples? Right? <laughs> Let me guess. He's using his hands. Why? Because the rules are applicable in a certain sandbox. In this game, those are the rules. Outside the game, rules don't apply. God created logic, rules. I'm talking about rules of physics, mathematics, science, all the rules of logic. All of those rules exist in the framework of creation. Beyond creation, vis-a-vis God's essence, none of these rules apply. Does that make sense? Yes? Yes? Sort of? Okay. Here's where it gets trippy. This is, um, this is why we say in Kabbalah that the hallmark, as it were, of divine essence, of God's essence is where paradox where paradox is to be found. Show me paradox, and I'll show you something that looks like God's essence. Why? Because what is paradox? 
Paradox is that which doesn't make sense according to the rules. Boom, that's where you find God. I want to share with you a story. A story of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. The Holy Temple had various spaces, right? The Holy Temple in Jerusalem, designed by David, built by Solomon, right? Cupertino, China, Apple. Anyway, so designed by, uh, designed by Solomon, sorry, sorry, designed by David, built by Solomon, correct? What was the core, the holiest space in the temple? What was it called? Holy of Holies. What an apropos name for the holiest space. The Holy of Holies. It's not just holy, it's the Holy of Holies. Known in Hebrew as Kodesh Hagadashim. Now, how big was the room? 20 Amot by 20 Amot. An Amma, singular of Amot, plural, is, a, is translated as a cubit. Cubit is typically from the elbow to the end of the fingers, which is approximately 18 inches foot and a half. So 20 amot is how many feet? 20 times 1.5 is? 30. So the, the space of the Holy of Holies was a room that was about 30 by 30 feet. My estimation is that from this wall to the midpoint of this room is about 30 feet. Is that correct? Give or take. Let's just say about. Maybe right here to here. And here to here, let's say this is the space, huh? <laughs> Everyone's an architect. Everyone's, anyway. <laughs> so, right, we, let's say it's about 30, let's just run with this, right? Because I'm not moving. So let's say right here, I'll be, the, I'll be this corner, boom, 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 30 by 30. Okay, it was very sparsely um, furnished. There wasn't a lot in the room. In the center of the room was, who knows what was in the center of the room? What was it? The Ark of the Covenant. Remember, um, what's his name? Harrison Ford? Right? That's what he was looking for? Raiders of the Lost? So the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant was in the center of the room. Well, how big was the Ark? I'm glad you asked. The Ark was, it was this wasn't a perfect square. It was a 3D rectangle. So it was, as it were, uh, that's not the right word. But whatever. So it was um, two and a half cubits long, one and a half wide, and one and a half tall. Small. Small. Little, little, little guy. Imagine a little, uh, kind of like a toy box, like for kids. A little bigger, right? Boom. Um, on the top, it had a gold cover with the kruvim, with the cherub, cherubim, you know, the angel figurines on top. Great. It was a ho- hollowed box. What was inside the box? Who remembers? The tablets, right? Remember Moses heard about the sin of the golden calf? Right? He started getting a headache. God says, take two tablets and call me in the morning. (laughs) You guys are very kind for not running me literally out of the room. And I appreciate that. I, I really appreciate that. Right, so there were actually two sets of tablets. Two sets of two tablets. The first one, first ones that were shattered. The second that remained whole. Both were in the ark. Both were in the ark, and it was the middle of the room. So again, you have this room that's, we're just going to use the amot now, because that's the way the Talmud discusses it, 20 by 20, within the center, I'm just going to use this table as an example, it's not proportionate, obviously, two and a half, one and a half, one and a half, in the center of the room. Yes? You with me? Great. Beautiful. The Talmud says the following. If you took a, a measurement, 
One wall to the other, 20. If you would measure this, two and a half. However, oh, camera's following me. That's cool. If you measure from this wall to this edge, 10. And if you measure from that wall to this edge, 10. You with me with the problem? Huh? So again, 20, two and a half, 10, 10. What happened to this space? The Talmud says the following. Makom ha'aron eno min hamida. What does that mean? The space of the ark didn't take up space. The space of the ark didn't take up space. Which means, which means, it, had sp- it took up space. I mean, it had space. You could measure it. It was there and it had a measurement. Two and a half. At the same time, it also didn't take up space. It took up space. Again, the language of the Talmud is specific. The space of the ark didn't take up space. So one second. It had space or it didn't have space? What's the answer? Exactly. Yes. It had space? Yes. It didn't have space? Yes. That's impossible. It doesn't make sense. The the laws of physics and logic don't allow it. Guess who doesn't operate by laws of physics and laws of logic? Or who doesn't have to operate by laws of physics and logic? The essence, atzmut. Which is, therefore, it's not surprising that where was this on display, as it were, in the Holy of Holies? Now, we could have done a third column here. Could have done a third column. You know, um, universe human temple, and seeing how the holy temple was also built in, in this way. But if we did that, the holy of holies would, would be parallel to the essence, to Atzmut. In the space of the holy of holies, guess what? Space and no space coalesce. And it's not a problem. It's not a contradiction. Why? Because the rules don't apply not only don't the rules apply, the concept of binary doesn't apply. Like either or, either there's space or there's no space. Either it's of the rules or outside the rules. No, nope, not even. We're going to have rules and not have rules at the same time. There's going to be space and no space simultaneously. Go figure. Go figure. That's a calling card of the essence. That's when you know you're touching on essence. When you have this paradox, I'll give you another example of paradox. Tomorrow night is Hanukkah. You ever wonder how the miracle happened? I don't mean like how God made it happen, but I mean like in a practical way. Let's just recap the story. Right? We light the menorah. I'm looking around for menorah. I don't think there's one here. Right? We light the menorah for how many days? Eight days. Why do we light it for eight days? That's how long it lasted. So here's what happened. The Syrian Greeks ransacked the temple, defiled the sanctuary, and, um, and they destroyed the oil. And when the Maccabees, when the Jewish people, re- uh, um, repelled the, the advance of the Syrian Greeks, reclaimed the temple, cleaned it up, they sought to rekindle the menorah that hadn't been rekindled as long as it was under that foreign rule, that foreign control. But they didn't have the oil. They found one jar hidden I don't know, behind the couch somewhere, or whatever, right? Hidden, 
They found a, a flask of oil. It only had enough to light for one day or one night. Miracle happened, and it took it would take them another eight days or seven days, eight days total to get new oil. Miracle happened, and it lit for it remained kindled for eight days. Great. The temple menorah, just so you know, had seven branches. Our Chanukiah, our Hanukkah menorah, has nine branches. Right, four on each side, with one in the middle. Right, the shamash. There's one in the middle that's taller, typically, and then four on each side. In the temple menorah, they were all the same size. There wasn't a shamish. There were seven, one center, three in each side. Now, why don't? Why isn't the Hanukkah menorah designed exactly the same as the temple menorah? Very simple, because we need eight flames for the eight nights, plus one to keep it symmetrical. You guys with me on this? Okay. Here's my question. They're lighting the temple menorah with a little bit of oil. So what they do? What do you think they did? So imagine, you're the Kohen, you got, you got the oil in your hand. Now this flask is not just good for one lamp. Remember, in, in, uh, I should probably explain, in the temple they didn't light one, then two, three, four. They lit all seven every day. Every afternoon they lit all seven. They didn't do any, you know, they didn't, they didn't change it up. We, Hanukkah, we light it. Different type of menorah, different style lighting. But in the temple menorah, they lit the whole thing, all seven flames, lamps, every day. They had enough oil to fill all seven lamps. What do they do? What do you guys think? They had the oil in the hand. What do they do? Somebody, somebody tell me what you would do. You have the oil. What are you doing? Pour it. Pour it. Oh. So some say that they poured an eighth. They knew they, knew, they, knew they needed to get eight units out of this. So they poured an eighth. Each, they filled each lamp an eighth. They lit it, and that eighth kept on going. It's like when you have 10% battery on your phone, and somehow it lasts the whole night. It's a Hanukkah miracle. Like, what is this? This is unbelievable. This is unbelievable. How is that possible? Right? That's one, that's one way. That's one way. Um, so the iPhone says, go to low power mode. Yes. Yeah. Menorah was in like a low, yeah. <laughs> slow burn mode. It's like a small little flame. Okay, so that's one, that's one option. Another option is that they poured another theory. These are all theories amongst the commentaries. Huh? They poured, all the oil. poured all the oil. And what happened is it only burned, it only went down an eighth every day. So the lamps were, every, all seven lamps were full. And by the end of day one, the oil only dropped an eighth. And then, every day. Great. Another theory has it that they filled all the lamps all the way. It burned all the way down. And then, the moment it burned down, what happened? Refilled. Magic. Poof. It refilled itself. Some say that when they poured it from the flask, they poured the whole, all of the oil out of the flask, and then they looked at the flask, and it rose again. It's amazing. It refilled. Those are all the theories. The problem with all those theories is that all those theories are, are thinking inside the box. We need to make this work, even if, though it's a miracle, it's going to work with the laws of physics, right? You need to refill, you need this, you need that, it's going only down an eighth, so it's a miracle, but it's still operating by some sort of construct that we can relate to. There's another option here. This is what the mystics say what happened. There's another option. They poured all the oil in, they lit it, and it burned, and the oil did not deplete at all. It burned, 
but it wasn't consumed. What does that sound like? Huh? The snap, the burning bush, right? It burned, but it wasn't consumed. That doesn't make any sense. Fire and no fire at the same time? Welcome to God's world. This is the paradox. The paradox of space and no space, physics and no physics, fire and oil, but no oil being consumed. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense. It doesn't work. I'm ready. They didn't pour any oil in at all, and it still lived. I haven't seen that anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I hear your theory. <laughs> You're free to publish it. So this is, what, this is what the mystics say. Is that it burned, right, with the oil, but the oil wasn't being consumed. Like the burning bush. Like the ark that had space, but didn't take up any space. That's the idea of paradox. So that's the third idea. The third idea is that the essence of God is not subject to the rules. Right? God is not subject to the rules. Um, let's take a look at text number three. Allison, please read text number three. Um, I'm flipping a lot of pages in my book. In your books, it's 184, um, Beyond Infinity. And this is something we've talked about before um, in certain contexts, but, but we're taking it even a step further over here. In truth, even infinity does not express ultimate. Rather, God's essence is neither finite nor infinite. The qualities of infinity and infinitude apply exclusively to divine revelation. Thank you. And that last line, that la- those last words, divine revelation refers to the light. In the world of light, in other words, if you're in the space, in the sandbox of divine light, the Arain Sof, in other words, from the construct of creation down, yeah, there's infinite, there's finite, there are rules for both, finite is limited, infinite is unlimited, you know, everything has its space, and something cannot be both infinite and finite at the same time. I mean, you could say that the infinite includes the finite, like we said before about Einstein, if he's really a large, a big head, big mind, he can also teach the kids. But that just means that the infinite can move laterally, you know, up, up and down. But infinite and finite at the same time, that would be impossible. But not for God. For the light, that's impossible, but not for the essence. When you talk about divine essence, atzmut, there is no impossibility. There are no rules. There are no limitations. This is completely beyond any type of, 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 constru- of construct and constriction, including the notion that something either has to be this or that. Again, that's like a binary approach. Either this or that. Choose a lane. God doesn't have to do that. Space and no space at the same time. Infinite and finite at the same time. Burning and not burning at the same time. Does, it's not a problem. To the to, to Atzimuth. It's not a problem. It, again, in our once you start with the rules of logic, now you have problems. God is not subject by those rules. Right? God it's like imagine, you know, you have there's you have kids or grandkids or whatever, and you're you're playing with the grandkids and and they created a game of like some sort of, I don't know, my kids have all these elaborate games of uh, I don't even know what they're called. Um it's like tag games and variations of tag games. It's like um what are even the names of it? I forget what they call it. Like you tag a person, but then if you don't do this or do that, it's all these elaborate games. So if you're in the game, 
You got all these elaborate rules. Outside the game, rules don't apply. Yeah, God creates rules and regulations. God creates logic. God creates a system. But that's for the system. Outside the system, there's no system. I hope that makes sense. All right. Let's go to something even a little bit more curious and or troubling. God is so beyond definition. God is so beyond any concept of construct that the truth is even the very distinction between good and evil is not inherently present within Atzimut. You guys hear what I'm saying? So we, what we intuitively sense that good is good, evil is evil. And there's a distinction between the two, right? We would hope sometimes that it would be more obvious to everybody, right? What's good and what's evil, etc. But we have, right, there's good is good, evil is evil. But to Atzimut, that's beyond all rules, regulations, definitions, descriptions, categories. What's good and what's evil? It's beyond everything. So now we're going to get into a bit of a troubling text. And Mark, I'll give you the troubling text. Like a bridge over troubled text. 186. Let's uh, take it away and then I'll, I'll do some explaining. This is from the Midrash. From the start of the universe's creation, God foresaw the deeds of the righteous and the deeds of the wicked. As it is stated, God knows the ways of the righteous and the way of the wicked that is doomed. Yeah. This was represented at the start of creation as follows. The earth was chaotic and desolate. This refers to the deeds of the wicked. God said, let there be light. This refers to the deeds of the righteous. However, the narrative is yet to clarify the genre of deeds that God desires. Is it these or those? This is clarified in the following verse. God saw that the light was good, Clearly, God desires the deeds of the righteous and does not desire the deeds of the wicked. So what is this Midrash saying? It's very powerful. The Midrash says that as it stands within the essence, we don't know or it's not clear as to whether good is good and evil is evil or some other construct. Or what's desired. Is good desired or is evil desired? Why? Because again, in a space, again, that's a misnomer because God doesn't have a space, but God's essence is not a space. But in that, I don't know, there's no language to say. So in the divine essence, right? In the divine essence, beyond all constructs, all definition, all logic, all sense and sensibility, right? So on that level, what makes something good? What makes something evil? What makes something better or worse? You don't, you don't have anything that really, you don't have any rules that, uh, that conditions it. So therefore, the measure says something remarkable. Not that good is not good. Good is good, and we understand that. But where does it come from ultimately? It comes from the essence. But how do you have that in the essence if there's no good or evil because it's all, there's no construct there, there's no, rule, there's no definition? Here's how, and you saw it at the end of that text. It's because God, the essence, Shows, and this is going to be also the fifth idea that choice can only exist in the essence. Choice can only exist in the free choice. Can only exist in the essence. Let me explain. Um, you and I make choices all the time. 
But what makes a choice free choice? I'm sure you've all heard of that term, right? Free choice, right? Free choice. What's, what's not free choice? What is choice and what's free choice? What's the difference? Could somebody explain the difference between choice and free choice? We had a bunch of dinners over there. It was a schnitzel sandwich and a burger, right? And so whoever had a dinner made a choice. I guess unless you were the last one and then you got whatever, whatever we had, whatever was, was, was sitting there, right? You made a choice. Would you call that a free choice? A non-free choice? What's a non-free choice? But then it's not a choice. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? If you don't say one option, but there's not a choice, then you just took what you had. So is that choice or free choice? And, and, but why don't you just say choice? Why do you, what's the word free? It's like, um, I don't know if we should be quoting him. I think he was not so friendly to the Jews. Henry Ford. Right? He said you could buy a car in any color as long as it's black. <laughs> You only made, right, the original cars, well, the original uh, Fords were only black. What was it, the T, uh, Model T. There you go. Speaking of T. Anyway, right, Chaim. Right, it was only, it was black. So the question is, so imagine you walked into the dealership. What do you want to buy? A car. Perfect, we have some of those. Which model? There's only one model. Which color? There's only one color. Which trim level? There's only one. Did you make a choice? Yes. Oh, okay. Right, true. Right, you could have walked out. That's true. <laughs> so here's, here's my question. What makes a choice free? It's a free choice. Free choice. Why don't you say choice? Here's, what, here's, here's what my assertion tonight. The only free choice is in the essence of God where there are no features that stand out from the other. Does that make sense? Ooh, I'm not explaining it right. I'm not fully explaining it. Let me, let, me, let me try to articulate. It's so hard. These are so deep concepts. All right, here we go. When you and I make a choice, typically, you know, a choice, do I want this car or that car? It's going to be influenced by the features of the car and how that makes you feel. And so one could argue it's not that free. It's not purely you. It's choosing you as much as you're choosing it. It makes you choose it based on what it has. Correct? Yes, you with me on that? Just say that again? I'll say it again. Why not? When, typically when we choose something, we're choosing it based on the qualities that it possesses. Oh, I like those qualities. Those qualities, I'm not sure about. I like those. Right? I like beef. I like chicken. Less filling tastes great. You guys remember that Bud Light? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I know you guys want to hear what I'm about to say. All right. Sorry for getting sidetracked. Right. So you have a choice between two things. These features or those features. And so when, you're, when you find yourself drawn toward one of the two choices, so you're choosing it, but in truth, it grabbed you also. You grabbed it. It also grabbed you. It grabbed you before you grabbed it. It had certain qualities. 
that you found desirable, which means that your choice is predicated on it, what it brings to the table. So was it free? It's a choice. It's not free. Truly free choice exists in a space where there are no qualities out there. It's you choosing blank slate. It's you choosing. God's choice of good over evil. Right? There was darkness. There was light. And God saw the light that it was good. God is choosing good and light over darkness and evil. That just happened. The Midrash says that happened right day one. God chooses light. God chooses good. That choice, that choice is a free choice. Good and evil, God is not bound by that. God is not getting excited about good or evil. God chooses good. And from that moment, that's the desired choice. That makes it a stronger choice. If you make a choice because of its qualities and its features, so although you chose it, how strong is it? It's not really you, it's it. It's that thing. That thing chose itself, essentially. But when you choose it... She's you. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> How this applies to relationships, we'll have to say for another class. <laughs> right? But you have this idea that God is the essence to where no qualities, you know, kind of have, make an impression. That's where real choice happens. And because of that, that makes that choice extremely powerful and significant. Because then it's really God or you, the one choosing, that's choosing. It's really free. It's unencumbered by any of the qualities of the choose-e. Choose-e? Not that person's choose-e, but the choose-e, that which is being chosen. Okay, I hope that made sense. Hey, I started the class by saying, not all this is going to make sense. Yeah. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> Every one of God's commandments. Yes. That's a free choice? That's a good question. You see, because I think if you say, yes, it is, then it contradicts what it says in the Talmud about Yeshua Ben-Lady, because he observed everything and therefore had no free choice left whatsoever. One could say that if somebody chooses good, right, their choice might be because of the perceived consequences of good which means that as much as they're choosing good, good is choosing them. None of that is a bad thing, by the way. That's all good. Nothing wrong with that. But on a level of pure choice, the question is, where do we see that show up? And I'm going to draw a human parallel to this. It's a good question. We can understand it different ways. So here, I, want to, I want to summarize the five points. Sorry, yeah. No worries. When you drink on Purim, yeah. You not know the difference between Haman Good. and Mordechai. Excellent. Is that the level of that? Yes, yes, yes. Why do you think it's called Purim? Al-Shem Hapur. Why are we calling it on Lutz? Think about it. We call the salvation, the holiday of salvation, based on the plot, the date that was chosen, Haman's date, evil date chosen by the lottery? That makes no sense. He, want, he knew that in a world of logic, there's no way to defeat the Jewish people. So what did he try to do? He tried to reach a level 
you try to somehow scale back up. I don't scale, not, not the typical, not a business sense, but like to try to go back, to undo it, to go back to that space beyond logic, beyond good and evil. He thought maybe he would have luck over there. But what he didn't know is what we learned right here, that even on that level, God chooses light. And that choice is a stronger choice than a choice that comes from a lower level of logic. A logical choice is weaker than an essential choice. Every day of the week. And so Haman, Haman, right, the, the hammer came down on him. He tried to go to a place beyond logic. But when he went to that space, he found out very clearly, very quickly, what God, what God truly uh, intends. All right, so back to, back to this idea. So I want to quickly summarize, and then I want to get to the five lessons for us. Okay, or the five parallels for us. So number one, we learned about the essence. Atzmut, number one. What was the first thing? No definitions. Number two, no definitions of labels. Number two, no beginning. Good. Number three, beyond all the rules. Right, beyond logic. Number four, beyond good and evil. Beyond good and evil, right? Similar idea, beyond good and evil. And number five, that which possesses free choice. Or... Yeah, yeah, free choice. That's number five. These exist in parallel with the human being. Um, so here's how I want to frame this. Within the human being... <laughs> I missed the punchline. <laughs> oh, oh. Oh, nice. Okay, so here we go. So what are the parallels? So here's, here's something fascinating. Um, the uh, Kabbalah teaches that the soul has five dimensions. Five dimensions. Five names. Chamisha, Shemot, Nikrala. She, the soul, the soul is a feminine. The soul has five names. Here we go. It's not in the book, but I'm telling you. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaya, Yechida. Nefesh, and from, from bottom up. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaya Yechida. Nefesh is the part of the soul that powers the biological life of the body. Right? It's like a battery pack, animation. Ruach powers the emotional life of a person. Neshama, the third level, powers the intellectual life of a person. Chaya powers the spiritual life of a person. And Yechida, so what's Yechida? So we have physical, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, what's left? That's pretty much the, the royal flush. That's, we got the whole, we got, we got everything. In relationships, right? That's the magical four levels of compatibility, right? Physical, right? Emotional, intellectual, spiritual, that's it. If a couple is aligned in all four, right? Book the chuppah, book the, uh, book the chasana, book the wedding, right? Let's make it happen. So what's the fifth level? The fifth level is what we call yechida. Yechida is the part of the soul that is one with the divine essence. It's a piece, sorry? The quintessence. Oh, quint. Essence and quint. It's quintessence. Quint is five. It's the fifth dimension. It's why on Yom Kippur, it's the only day of the year that we have how many prayers? Five. Corresponding to all five dimensions of the soul. Ni'ilah, the closing prayer, corresponds to the Yechida. 
That's why Ni'ila is the closest, the most emotionally you know, dynamic prayer. Yechida is the part of the soul that's a piece of God, that is one with the essence of God. And therefore, therefore a lot of stuff plays out. Here we go. The human being, therefore, has a parallel. The whole point of that little preamble is to say that just like we have on the cosmic side, off the chart we have the idea of God's essence, we also have within the human soul, or within our souls, we also have a dimension that is also this you know, essential part of the soul called yechida. How does it play out? Five, same five ideas paralleled on the human level. Number one, no definition. So what do you mean no definition? Remember the verse in Genesis that says that God created the human being in his image? right? And then everyone wonders, like, what does that mean? Since when does God have an image? Well, a few weeks ago we explained that what that means is that just like God employs these ten spherot, ten divine energies, the human soul also has ten divine energies. Boom! In the, mirror, in the image of God, here to here. That was a few weeks ago. That was so three weeks ago or four weeks ago. But today we can go deeper. And today we can say that there's a deeper understanding of this. And that is, we said the essence of God doesn't have any descriptions, no definitions, no limitations. And the truth is, we're creating the divine image, meaning we're created in this unimage of God. Just like God has no image, no definition, no, de- no descriptions, no limitations, we also don't possess those either. So often in life, we trip ourselves up. We tell ourselves stories. I'm limited, I'm stuck, I can't or I have to. And the message tonight is, just like God possesses, possesses, just like the essence of God transcends definition and limitation, the essence of our soul likewise transcends definition and limitation. Which means that thing that you told yourself you can't do, that's a narrative somewhere over here. But in your core, you can do that. Because you're in the image of God or the unimage of God. Just that God has no limitation, has no image, you and I also at our core have that ability to unravel all of the tethers that tie us down. That's why Yom Kippur, which is the day of five, the day in which we're trying to get to that place of no limits, right? No limitations, no definitions. It begins with which prayer? We spoke about the last prayer. The opening prayer of, of, of Yom Kippur is? Kol Nidre. What is Kol Nidre? Disavowing all of the vows, all of the lies that we told ourselves, all of those promises, I can, I have to, I will, I should, I shouldn't, all of those narratives that hold us back, let go as we enter the day. That's, does this make sense? Yes? Yes, yes, yes? So how are we in the image of God? On image. God has no image, we also, we're not stuck. Message number one. What was the second idea about God? Help me out. God has no beginning. No beginning. How how does that apply to us? So here we go. So God has no beginning. And this is shockingly also present within us as well, in our psyche. Okay. Where does a person get the ability? Oh. This is where I coined the phrase. I actually did coin this phrase. I don't know if I should take credit for it or not. God is an atheist. You've heard me say this before. God is an atheist. And now you're probably thinking, what does that even mean? Well, if you define atheism as someone who does not believe that there's something higher than them, well, then guess what? God absolutely is an atheist. 
God does not believe in any antecedent. Why? Because there's no beginning, as we said before, right? The only other entity in the entire spectrum of creation that has that God sense of I am, I was, I will be, there's nothing greater than me. The only other creature in existence that feels that is the human being. We're created last, right? Not only the lowest world, right? Not only are we at, not only do we generally exist at the bottom of this page, but even within the six days of creation, guess what? Last. The very last creation has a psyche ingrained that mirrors perfectly the source. It's kind of like coming full circle where the bottom overlaps with the top or beyond the top. Uh-oh, I'm trying to position God right here. <laughs> Whoops. Right? It's this, the idea that I am a self-made man, right? I don't believe in anything higher. I don't, you have to prove to me that God exists. I don't believe in anything greater than this. Where is that ability? Where is that the possibility to say that come from? Everything, here's the thing. Anything created. Let's read the text. We'll say it better than I can. Text number 10. Text number 10. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, 196. 196. Okay, I'm going to read this. Text 10, 196. The very essence of the creator, the ultimate independent existence that has no antecedent or cause at all, he alone has the exclusive power and ability to create an entity, us, from absolute and total nothingness to the extent that the created entity senses that it has no cause or antecedent at all. You like that, huh? The old, who can pull off that trick to create something that feels that it has no creator? Only something that also has no creator. You with me? Everything else is created by something that feels that it is a creator. Therefore, it, 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 um, it transmits that feeling likewise. So imagine, from the Arain Sof, the infinite light, does it know it has a creator? Absolutely. The thing that it creates also knows that it has a creator. The thing that that creates also knows that there's a creator. When I say creator, something above it. Everything in that causal relationship, cause and effect, the effect assumes the psyche of the cause. And if the cause knows that there's something Prior to it, the effect will also know about its cause. And that makes sense. That makes sense. Everything comes from something. And so the thing that made the other thing, that knows that it came from a third thing, impresses that knowledge on the next thing down, that it should know that it came from it. But if you come straight from God, direct, direct from God, who doesn't have this something came before me, then what's impressed upon that creation is nothing came before me either. The human being is stemming not from the light, but from the essence. That's why we also have free choice. To skip to number five, right? We also have free choice. In the areas, Hakobi de Shemaim Chutz Miyurat Shemaim, Everything is in the hands of heaven except for those core moral choices. 
we do have free choice. We have that yechid, the soul. We are created in the mirror image. By the way, the idea that a human being can deny a creator is not a good thing. But it's a possibility that comes from the fact that the human being is tethered, essentially as a clone of the original source, the divine essence. Knowing this should reframe that atheistic approach. The reason why I sense only myself and not something beyond me is because I am, I am a mirror of the divine essence. And that itself should impress upon the person, the source. Are you with me? I know I have a source because how else could I be so sugar? How else could I have the impression that there's no source? Everything comes from something. No, I don't believe in something higher. Nope, 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 nope. No higher power. <laughs> Since when? Who believes that? Only someone created by God. Only someone created by God could be so sugar to believe, so crazy to think that they're their own creator. So knowing that, then you back off of that statement. So that's, again, so just to go through these things quickly. So number one, God has no definition. Let go of your definitions. Don't hold yourself back. Number two, God has no beginning. And that's why we also half the time forget that we have a beginning. Number three, oh, beyond rules and logic. Just like we said about the paradox, God can assume space and be beyond space at the same time, like the ark, right? The ark took up space and didn't take up space at the same time. The same thing is true with us. We are called upon to be in space and out of space at the same time. You know, Judaism is all about, um, is all about elevating mundane experiences. You're going out to eat with friends. Great, great. Recognize from whom, you know, where the food comes from. Recognize that this is an opportunity to elevate the energy of the food and convert it into, into energy for the human being to do something positive, to do a mitzvah with that, with that energy. In other words, even as you're occupying time and space and doing things that are very much in the framework of the here and now, mix it with an energy and a consciousness that is beyond the temporal, beyond the finite. Mix fit, uh, finitude with infinity. I've shared this. I, I shared, I'm pretty sure I shared this at the uh, High Holiday Learner Service, uh, Rosh Hashanah, maybe second day, but who's counting? So, you know, the, mitzvah, the, 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 the custom to dip the apples in honey in Rosh Hashanah. Everyone knows, they have a sweet new year. So I asked the question, you couldn't find other things that are sweet? Apples and honey are sweet, but there's plenty of other things that are sweet. Why this and that? And why apples dipped in honey specifically? Why not just apples or just honey? So I explained. You know what's unique about the apple? Cut an apple, put it on a plate, wait five minutes. You know what happens? It turns brown. Right, apples begin to fade. They're very temporal. They begin to um, fade right away. And what about, what about, um, what about um, honey? Honey is, by contrast, a preservative. Honey is a preservative. So here, yeah. Yeah. Honey can keep things, yeah. So here's the paradox. You're taking something finite, and dipping it into something infinite. And the message is, imbue our finite moments with some infinite truth. And that's the idea of moving laterally through the space, being not stuck in either the finite or the infinite, like God, beyond the rules. That's the third point, beyond rules and logic. Beyond good and evil means that we have the power to transform evil into good, which is the power of teshuva, the power of repentance and return. We have the ability 
to take the mistakes of our past and use them as catalysts for positivity in the future. And that means that we are blurring, blurring the lines between good and evil, right? What seemed in the past as definitely bad, that was a mistake that I made. Well, not so fast. If because of that mistake, you are more committed to good than ever before, well, then guess what? That mistake is the best thing that ever happened. It doesn't mean we should do that for that end. But if it happened, there's a way to blur those lines. Remember we said that the, the essence beyond good and evil? I Yeah, that's what happens when you run out of battery. <laughs> that's lesson six. Make sure that you've charged your battery, your laptop, well enough before the class. Um, yeah, if you can tell them that I, I'll post the audio. I, I post the audio and video from earlier today in the, in the email that I send out after, you know, tomorrow. Um, I felt my phone was, uh, was buzzing. And then I looked down at the screen, and it was blank. And I'm like, okay. Those, those, uh, she was. <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Might, might as well. Yeah, she, she, she'll get it. She'll get it. So again, just, to, just to, to not lose focus and to wrap this up. So again, no, the, the first point about God's essence is no definitions. We are likewise um, not stuck in ours in self-definitions. Number two, God is... Um, what was the second point? Huh? No beginning. no beginning. We also have, you know, we also have that tendency to believe that we're our own creator. God is beyond logic. We are likewise, we have the ability to, um, as the paradox, we have the paradox ability to be here, but also infuse spirituality into very physical mundane moments. Um, the fourth point about uh, blurring the lines between good and evil, um, we also have that ability to utilize the negative of our past into a positive catalyst for the future or the present. And finally, free choice. We spoke about before. We have that free choice. God has gifted that to us, which takes us to the end of the class. And in the final conclusion, I want to say this. You know, when, does, when do you know that... Um, when, when do you know... When, when is somebody's desire um, culminated? Typically, it's done at the end. Somebody wants to build a house. Right? You want to build a house. So they have, a, they, have a, they have a dream home in mind. So then they start a process, and it takes them two years to build a home. Right? And in the middle, at some point, there's a hole in the ground. If you stop it right there, right, you, stop, you stop construction, stop the project, and say, Mr. and Mrs. Couple, congratulations, here's your hole in the ground. What are they going to say? You're out of your mind. I do not want this. Then you put up the frame. Congratulations, here's your home. Nope. It's not done until it's done. Until the mezuzah is knocked in and you walk into the front door and everything is ready. The end, and that's what you wanted in the beginning. You would think like this. You know, the project begins here as an idea and it ends two years later. This is time, linear, right? It ends over here. You would think this is the furthest, the end. The further you go, it's the furthest away from the beginning point. That's not how it works. The end is what you initially dreamed of in the beginning. You with me on this? Yes? It's not linear. It forms a circle. Right? When you finish the project, you're not furthest away from the beginning. You're the closest to the beginning. God, right? We've been learning about this, right? God's essence is who knows where. But then this process starts. 
and we're at the bottom, the bottom edge of the bottom, guess what? This is what I said this before with the consciousness. This is what God wanted. God wanted us right here with our free choice to choose to fix and to finish the world that he created. God intentionally did not create a perfected world. Our sages say that God created the world with the letter He. What's significant about the letter He is that it's got you know, three lines, but it has a few holes in it. it. has a few holes. God created an imperfect world. Why? To give us a job. <laughs> to, to keep us employed. <laughs> God says, I'm creating an imperfect world, and I want you to be the ones to fix it. The world will have darkness. The world will have pain. The world will have sorrow. The world will have heartbreak. And you will be the ones that are called upon to heal it, to fix it, tikkun olam, to make the world a better place. That's our calling. That's my calling, and that's your calling. And that's not just our job. That's not just busy work. That is ultimately what the original intent was in Atzmut, in the divine essence. What did God want initially? What's at the end? And what's at the end is us. And we are the last creation. And you know, when someone stops at the end, that usually, that's usually means that's what I wanted. What God wants is for us to make this world a home for God, a place where divinity, where divine energy, where God himself is felt, is felt as welcome. And so my friends, this is my final blessing and message to you for this course. We've learned a lot, a lot of these levels and that we've learned about these levels and dimensions. And our job is to kind of peel back the layers, peel back the layers of reality until we get to the top and then beyond the top. And how do we get to beyond the top? It's by living a life of meaning, living a life of spirituality, living a life of holiness. And that doesn't exclude living a physical life. That means that we're living a life in which we combine the physical and the spiritual. Judaism is very unique. In other faiths, to be a professional spiritualist means you have to disavow physical life. Right? The, holy pri- the high priest in the holy temple in Jerusalem, he had to be married. He had to be married. If he wasn't married, he couldn't serve. It's a, it's a bit of a different take. In Judaism, it's not about disavowing the physical. It's about synthesizing the physical with the spiritual, making this world a holier place, a home for God. May each of us, and there's plenty of work to do in the world that we find ourselves in right now, may each of us, hopefully with the inspiration from this course, commit ourselves to doing one more good thing, make one more positive change within our own world and the world of those around us to bring more light, to flood this world with divine light. And very soon, may we experience the time when we undo the tzimtzum, undo the divine, like we said last week, undo the divine concealment, and when it will all be clear that this is God's world, right, and, uh, and, and this is really a beautiful place and a garden. My friends, the time is now. The calling is ours. As Hillel said in Pirkei Avot, right? If not me, if I am only for myself, sorry, if I'm not for myself, who am I? If I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? So now is the time.
to step up and to make a difference. And with that, we fulfill the entire purpose of existence. I want to thank you very much for joining me for this six session series. Thank you. I'm sure my mother would have loved to hear that live. <laughs> but I'll tell her that you guys were very kind. I want to thank <coughs> all of our core sponsors for helping support the education, educational programs that we do and for making this a possibility. And I want to draw your attention. I know we're a little bit late, but I just want to draw your attention very quickly to the upcoming course. I have a uh, between 90 second and two minute um, trailer that I would like to play for those that wish to stay around um, that explains what the next course is about. You know, this was a course on Kabbalah. The next course could not be any different. This is about real practical life. For over 40 years, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was the spiritual leader of the Chabad Hasidic movement and shared insight and guidance about work and wealth and family and children and health and wellness. And this course is the advice, advice for life, exploring the Rebbe's practical wisdom. Um, I put by everyone's place, I put a sign-up sheet. If you'd like to come to the course or like to try it out, super easy. You can just put your name down. I will be in touch with you. Just write your name in here. For those that are signing up tonight, we'll even knock off $10. What a deal. Who doesn't love a deal? <laughs> Such a deal. What a mitzia. Unbelievable. All right, should we watch some Netflix? Squid Game uh, situation? Okay, what we're going to do here is, nope, not Netflix. Top Gun. What is it? No hard feelings. This is great. Okay, I don't even have this connected to any account. This is just literally what they populate. Okay, VLC, going old school, new school. Um, here, here it is, Advice for Life promo. All right. Oh, Mirav, can you hit the lights in here? It's the first two on the right. Thank you so much. Your hardest light questions at the Brooklyn doorstep of Rabbi Hold on. Known as Hold on. There we go. For decades, tens of thousands found Jewish answers to their hardest light questions at the Brooklyn doorstep of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, simply known as the Rebbe. He showed how Jewish wisdom provides clarity and direction on our real-life concerns about health, work, family life, fulfillment, adversity, and anxieties. I told the Rebbe I'm having a crisis of faith. It was a really, really difficult time for us. The Rebbe spent long nights meeting countless people from all walks of life to talk about their most pressing personal struggles. Mess quoted into the Rebbe's study, and I'll never forget it if I live to be honored. When I looked at him, I saw tears, as if he was my brother, and I'm talking to my brother about him. The Rebbe answered hundreds of thousands of personal letters, seeking answers to private questions of everyday life. And the Rebbe said to me, he said, do me one favor, put on one more doctor. It was such a wonderful answer. And he said it was one. Now you can discover the Rebbe's real life answers for yourself. She said, in front of everyone there in Washington, she said, I owe this for the rabbi who's an optimist, for the optimism. Embark on a multimedia journey to uncover the gold mine of clarity and direction contained in the Rebbe's timeless advice for living a more purposeful and successful life. Join us for Advice for Life, 
as we tell firsthand stories of the Rebbe's public and private interactions, so you too can explore the Lubavitcher Rebbe's advice for leading a more wholesome, healthy, and fulfilling life. Well, don't sign up there. Sign up on our website. <laughs> you could also do that. Um, okay, that's, uh, that is the trailer. That is the course. Tra- Sorry? Well, what? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Wednesday, January 24th. We're going to do the same deal like this time. Daytime option, evening option, dinner option, all that good stuff. It's going to be a six-week session. I don't think there's any weeks that we're off. I think it's six consecutive. We don't have like a, a holiday in, uh, uh, intervening. So check it out. It's going to be a really great course. Um, tell your friends and join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you guys for coming out. It's been amazing. It's been a great experience. Tom, great to see you. And all of you guys, you guys are amazing. Round of applause for you. <laughs>